right, well, good morning again. It's so good to see all of you as always. Hope you are having a great weekend. Uh, well, we are making our way, uh, continuing our five-year journey uh, through the Old Testament, and we're in our final stretch. And this year, this season, we're going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you were here last week, if you remember in Pastor Brandon's intro message, after 70 years of being exiled in Babylon, Cyrus, the king of Persia, moved by God, he invites the Israelites to return back home to Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple, and to resume their old way of Cyrus. Cyrus issues a decree, an executive order, not only granting but also instructing the surrounding wherever they might be to contribute to the cause. So initially, about 50,000 Israelites take up Cyrus on his offer. They grab their one-way ticket and head back to Jerusalem to a land that was rightfully theirs to rebuild their temple. And as Brandon highlighted last week, these are just normal, broken, imperfect people just like you, just like me. And for some of them, this was an opportunity most likely for a few of them, this was an opportunity to return back to their childhood homes. Perhaps they still had some lingering memories of what life was like kingdom. But for most of them, this would be their first time going to Jerusalem, having never seen this land before, only hearing the stories of what it was like, what God So for a lot of them, you can just imagine, right, the excitement, maybe the hope, the anticipation, this idea of going back to Jerusalem, the land that was given to them. But there was also some anxiety. There was a lot of uncertainty. We know that there was worry and even fear amongst them because a lot can change over the span of 70 years. While, while the Israelites were happy, they were happy to return, they were happy to come back home to rebuild their temple, to reestablish their perhaps nation one day, there were a lot of people who were unhappy about their return, most notably the, the current tenants, the current residents. of They weren't thrilled at the idea of Israel coming back and reestablishing themselves in a place that they called home for the past 70 years. And it's in this context that the Israelites arrive, and we pick up in chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings 
prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. So after about six or seven months of settling back in to Jerusalem, we are told that a group of priests, a group of leaders led by two individuals, Joshua and Zerubbabel, they gather together and they build an altar to Yahweh God. And in verse 3, and this is a key verse here, it says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Despite their fear, they offered sacrifices to God. So the Israelites were happy to be home, right? They were humbled and moved how, by how God had orchestrated a way for them to return and receive what was rightfully theirs. Yet at the same time, they were afraid, it says. They were afraid of what the locals would think, what they would do, how they would perceive them, and how they might respond to Israel not only reclaiming their land, but resuming their old way of life, especially in proclaiming that their God was far greater and better than all other gods. And those uncertainties led to a legit, genuine fear for those Israelites. They were genuinely anxious and worried. And verse 3 doesn't say that they overcame their fear. It doesn't say that they set aside their fear or they ignored their fear. Rather, it says, despite their fear, they built an altar for the Lord. They began sacrifices every morning and every night. That even before the temple was rebuilt, the Israelites felt compelled, they felt an urge to worship. You see, the, re, the rebuilding of the temple, right? the purpose, it wasn't about reconstructing a building. It was about restoring a relationship with God. It was about reordering their hearts. It was about reinstating a way of life, restoring a passion and a commitment to worship. The, prior, the priority was never a building. The priority was worship to remember who God was to them, to remember all that he had done, to remember all that he had promised, and to remember how he wanted them to respond. And thus, worship wasn't about what they felt worship should be. It was about what God defined worship to be. It was an invitation, ultimately, to give him praise, to give him thanks, to give him honor, in a way that he wanted to receive that praise, in a way that he wanted to receive that honor and that thanks, giving him the sacrifices that he desired, preparing them in the way that he instructed, giving it to when he asked for it, where he asked for it. It was to honor God and to bless God by doing what he wants, to bring forth sacrifices through faith and obedience. And for Israel, in this moment that was about showing up, 
offering sacrifices, building the temple. And they did this daily, morning and evening, despite their fears. And what this reminds us, what this reveals to us, is that there is an inherent risk that comes with worship. That there is a cost that one must be willing to pay in order to worship God. Now, I'm not talking about charging admission to church. You know, we're not, we're not thinking about that or talking about that. Right? But in order to give God the honor and the glory that he deserves, it's going to cost us something. Right? For the Israelites, it was the cost of their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. It was the cost of showing up every morning and every evening. Perhaps it was the cost of missing out on morning brunches, evening hangouts, time with family, time with friends. Perhaps it's the cost of never being able to sleep in in the mornings or go to bed early at night. Maybe it was the cost of standing out in the sun with no roof over their head, no AC, no shade, in order to, to worship and bring forth their offerings. It was the blood, the sweat, the tears of working every day to rebuild that temple. In addition, these Israelites had to consider the cost of their own safety, their own well-being, perhaps their livelihoods, their reputation, and their ability to thrive and prosper in a new community, knowing that their neighbors had hostility towards them. Yet despite it all, these broken, imperfect Israelites, with all their different and unique hope and expectations, their fears and their worries, they chose to pay that cost by offering sacrifices morning and night and committing to build the temple out of faith and obedience. Now, when it comes to most things in life, at least good things in life, I think it's safe to say that there's always some kind of cost that is associated most relationships, if not all relationships, require a certain amount of work. Success, whether it be academic success, professional sex, success, financial success, athletic success, musical, artistic success, all success requires a certain amount of effort. Health requires a certain amount of discipline. And most things in life require a certain amount of, of money. Right? There is a, a cost. And thus, whether you're out shopping in a store, whether you're searching online, when you're thinking about something you want to get, something you want to experience, a place where you want to go, we're always, at least subconsciously, wrestling with the question, well, is it worth the cost? Right? As my girls are, are getting older, they're 15 and 13 now, you know, they're beginning to enjoy shopping more and more. So just a month ago, it was my daughter Carly's birthday, and we're like, oh, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to Chuck E. Cheese? I'm just kidding. We say Chuck E. Cheese. Right, like, do you want to go to do something fun? Do you want to play? And she's like, I want to go shopping. I just want a day at the mall. Right, so we went down to the Spectrum, and, and we're walking around stores, and they're going into, you know, PacSun, H&M, and all these other stores I, I don't even know. And, you know, there's a joy that I feel as a parent, just being able to provide, being able to bless, seeing them happy. But, but I don't know anything about girls' clothing, right? So I'm just kind of following them, and I'm trusting them to discern what's good to buy and what's not. 
And it's interesting to see them, even at a young age, kind of wrestle with that tension of, I want something, but is it worth it? Right? So there are times when they see a, a clothing that they like, and they see that, oh, man, this is more valuable than what the asking price is. And it's a no-brainer to them. Like, oh, we're going to get this. But then there's also times where they walk up to something hanging on a rack, and they look at the price, and they're just like in utter shock and almost disgusted by the asking price. Right? In other words, it's too costly. It's too expensive. Right? And this is stating the obvious for, for all of us, but for most of us, right, if something is too expensive, if something is too costly, we're not going to purchase it. We're not going to, to do it. Now, what too expensive is or what too costly is, that's relative and that's different for each and every one of us. But most of us, we're not going to buy something, we're not going to do something unless we feel like it's worth it that it's worth the asking price. It's worth the cost. Whether it's going out to eat, whether it's buying clothes, a bike, a house, going on vacation, a day at Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm. We'll only do it if it's worth the cost. And the same is true when it comes to, to worship. When it comes to giving God thanks, when it comes to honoring him, blessing him, glorifying him, serving him, obeying him, what is the cost we are willing to pay? Right? In simple terms, what is God worth? And I'm not asking this theologically, I'm not asking it theoretically, but practically, tangibly, for, for every single one of us. What is the cost that we are willing to pay for worship? How much of our, our time are we willing to spend? How much of our, our energy, physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy? How much money are we willing to give? How much of our comfort how much of our well-being are we willing to sacrifice? How much of our dreams and our desires are we willing to surrender? How much of our success, how much of our future, how much of our mornings, how much of our evenings, how much of our weekdays, how much of our weekends? Well, the Israelites, we see, they commit themselves to, to, to worship through both sacrifice and obedience. It doesn't take long for their neighbors, their, their, the, the, the current residents who had just been pushed out, it doesn't take long for them to rally together and to attempt to stifle Israel's progress. First, they offered to help as a way of sabotaging Israel's rebuilding efforts, yet Israel refuses. And then picking up in Ezra chapter 4, verse 4, it says, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Right, so they gather together, they bribe officials, they do everything they can to frustrate and stifle Israel's rebuilding process. 
And then in the remainder of chapter 4, we get a list of events that are, it's, that's not ordered chronologically, but it's actually ordered thematically. And the reason the author does it is to highlight the various forms of opposition that Israel would face during this seasons of rebuilding and restoring. But not only to highlight the opposition, but to highlight how Israel would respond to these challenges, to these oppositions. And what we are told, what we, are see, what we see, is there are times when Israel would stand firm. There would be times when Israel would be willing to pay whatever cost necessary to worship God through faith, through obedience, through sacrifice. Yet there were also times, there were also moments when Israel would think to themselves, the cost is too high. Perhaps they were ordered to stop. Perhaps they were threatened to stop. Times when they were too afraid, too discouraged, and worship would cease. In verse 24, it says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. See, after this initial burst of excitement, right, this building of the altar, the laying of the foundation, Israel's commitment to worship morning and day, building the temple, right, these neighbors rally together, they bribe officials, they make life difficult, and what we're told is that the building stopped. And for 15 years, Israel stopped rebuilding. Now, it's hard to say whether they stopped offering sacrifices as well. Perhaps that continued. But they stopped serving. They stopped obeying. They stopped showing up. For Israel, the cost of worshiping through sacrifice and obedience became too costly. Opposition increased. Danger increased. The potential loss increased. So worship decreased. Just this past uh, week, on Thursday, uh, Pastor Brandon, Pastor Nick, and I, we got uh, some time to squeeze in a bike ride, a mountain bike ride together, which I think was only like the second time we've ridden together in this past, past year. And after we, we got into that quick ride, we were standing around chatting, and we were reminiscing about how, you know, maybe a year ago, two years ago, it was so much easier to, to get out and squeeze in a bike ride. Now, we are not glad that the pandemic happened whatsoever. But during that time, life slowed down, and it was just easy to, to get out and to ride. And there were days where we were riding at least once a week, oftentimes twice a week. Right? There was hardly any traffic. Gas was cheaper. We were doing work, and kids were doing school online, so there's no drop-off, there's no pickup, there's no basketball practice or soccer games. And thus, we were, you know, going all over. Like San Juan Capistrano, Riverside, Pasadena, Simi Valley, times we go to Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear, even Mammoth. Because it was just easier at the time. But now that things have slowly you know, returned back to normal, we praise God for that. Traffic is crazy and terrible again, right? Gas is expensive. We're doing drop-off. We're doing pickup. There's kids' activities. 
right? Ministry has picked up. So our desire to write is just the same, but it's just harder. It's just more costly to do it, costly with time, costly with energy, costly with, with resources. There are more limitations, more constraints to what we are able to do. Now, I know this may sound strange, but we also have limitations. There are also constraints that we have in our life when it comes to our ability to worship. In other words, we all have a limited capacity in terms of how much we are willing to devote our life for God. How much we're willing to set aside, how much we are willing to sacrifice, how much we are willing to surrender for his honor, his glory, his plans, his purposes. Now, Sunday mornings, we know Sunday mornings are it's just a small sliver of our worship before God. But even to worship on Sunday mornings, that requires a certain amount of cost that we need to be willing to pay, whether to be here, whether to join online. Right? Maybe it's the cost of having to, to wake up early, right? driving over here. Maybe it's the cost of missing out on, on a brunch, missing out on our favorite football teams, basketball games, soccer games, whatever it might be. But even being here on a Sunday morning, there requires a certain amount of cost. Now, I say this without judgment. This is a pure observation, which I am a part of. But there are just some weekends where we are willing to pay that cost. And there are some weekends where we are not willing to pay that cost to worship. Now, Sunday mornings are just a small sliver of what worship is and opportunities to worship. There are also the opportunities of, of, of doing quiet times, doing our devotional, spending time with God. There are things like being a part of a small group. There are things like serving in a ministry. There are things like serving our serving. There are things like sharing our faith, going on missions. And amongst those things, there are some things we're willing to do, some things we're, willing, we're not willing to do. But even out of those things, those are just a small portion of what worship is and what worship could be. There's also every thought that we allow ourselves to entertain. There's also every emotion that we allow ourselves to feel and, and hold on to. There's every word that we allow to come out of our mouth. There's every choice, every decision that we make day in and day out. That worship is not just about our church life. It's about our home life. It's our work life. It's our social life. It's what we do during quiet times. It's what we do during work time, family time, fun time, game time, me time, downtime, vacation time. Right? All those are opportunities to worship to devote those times and those spaces to honoring God and glorifying God. And I highlight these things not to guilt us, not to shame us, but to simply point out that there is a likelihood in all of us, myself included, 
that we all have areas in our life where we are not willing yet to use for worship. Parts of our life that we have not yet devoted fully to God and for God. Perhaps there are things that seem too costly or too difficult for us to give up. And Israel had their fair share of these moments. Times where their circumstances, their challenges, their limitations got in their way of their ability to worship. And for 15 years, the building stopped. Picking up in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So after 15 years of being stagnant, two prophets show up on the scene over the span of a few years, Haggai and Zechariah, and they simply proclaim God's word. They just remind Israel over and over of who God is. They remind Israel of of what God had had done for them. And they remind Israel about all that he had, had promised. And as Israel is listening to this, as they're receiving God's word, maybe day in, day out, over the course of two, three, four years, at some point, not right away, But gradually, over time, something begins to stir within them. Something is reignited, and they are once again compelled to to worship the Lord. To not only bring forth the sacrifices, but to commit themselves to the rebuilding of the temple. Right? Somehow they were convicted. Somehow they were inspired. Somehow they were convinced that devoting their lives for God was worth the cost. Yes, they would face more opposition. They would face increased threats, more obstacles. There would be times where they would stand firm, times when they would waver, yet God would deliver. God would provide. God would protect. Eventually, under the authority of King Darius, who was two kings after Cyrus, King Darius doubled downs on Israel's right and authority to rebuild their temple. He orders the locals to stop harassing them and to actually help them with labor and resources. And after 20 to 30 years, scholars debate it, Israel finally rebuilds the temple. Chapter 6, verse 15 to 18 says, The temple was completed on the third day of the month, Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. 
And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. See, the question that we need to consider consistently, constantly, is in light of who God is, in light of all that he has done, how are we to respond? What is he worth? What cost are we willing to pay? What are we willing to devote to him and for him? Jesus would say things like this in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of who God is, in light of all God has done, Offer your bodies, your lives, every part of it as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Scripture is pretty clear. God is worthy of, of everything. And a proper response is to devote every aspect of our life to him to live for him, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Now, it's one thing to, to know this theologically, to, to know it intellectually. I think most of us, if you know, we've been around church for a while, if we're a, a believer, most of us wouldn't disagree with this. You know, we'd be like, I don't know if God's worth everything. You know, most of us would agree. And we know that there is a difference of, of believing something theologically, yet it's a whole other thing to live it out relationally, day in and day out. On one hand, we, we know this. On the other hand, we all have areas that are hard to let go of. We all have room to grow. We all have more to give. We all have more that we can devote. So a couple years ago, uh, when we were getting into mountain biking, uh, one day, Brandon sends me a text message. It's a link to offer up with a used bike that was available down in San Diego, the 2018 Trek Remedy. He sends me this link. He's like, hey, bro, I just saw this online. I think it's a really good deal. You should check it out, but totally no pressure. I understand if you don't. So I opened the link, and I don't know much about bikes at this time, and I'm just kind of looking, and it sounds pretty cool. It's kind of pricey. But just the thought of like going through the hassle of like buying a bike and selling a bike, I was like, hey, thanks so much for sending this, but I think I'm going to pass. I'm good with, with what I have. So Brian's like, totally understand. And doesn't write back, just, you know, cool. And then he proceeds to get in his car, drive down to San Diego, purchase this bike, and then text me later that evening, hey, I got the bike. Do you want to check it out tomorrow? So the next day, we, we get to the trails. I, you know, I, I take a look at the bike up close. I'm like, wow, it does look pretty good. It's really light. 
you know, kind of ride around in the parking lot. And then we start the ride. And maybe about 10 minutes into it, Brandon's like, so what do you think? And I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, like, I'll buy it. Like somehow Brandon knew, right, that even though I wasn't willing to pay for it, right, he didn't bombard me with more text messages like, you should do it, it's a great deal, it's totally worth it, you're going to regret it, what are you thinking? He just went and got it. And he was convinced that if I just saw it up close, right, if I just sat on it, if I just wrote it a little bit, that I would be convinced that it was worth the cost. And you see, the same is true with worship. It doesn't do us any good, most of us, me included, for someone to tell us, you need to give more. You need to devote more. You need to do more. You need to sacrifice more. Even though we may know it, it doesn't help. It's not what motivated the Israelites. Somebody didn't stand there yelling at them, scolding them. God merely sent prophets to remind them who God was, what he was like. Fully convinced that if Israel would just experience more of God, if they would just get a closer look at God, if they would just learn more about him, if they would just remember him and think about him, they would come to discover that he is worth the cost of their worship. And you see, this is something that we can all do regardless of where we are in our faith. Maybe we have a whole lot that we can bring forth. But the one thing we can do is we can learn more about God. We can think about God. We can meditate on God. We can reflect upon who he is and what he's done and all that he's promised. That we can draw near to him and invite him to help us see that he is worth everything. And this is something that we get to do together. It's why we gather week in and week out. It's why we sing songs that just remind us of who God is and all that he's done. It's why we study the word and proclaim who he is and what he's done. It's why we have things like small groups. It's why we host classes, why we provide different ways of learning the scriptures. So as we close our time this morning, let's do just that. As a church, to be together, to proclaim to work together, but also to remember and to reflect who our God is. To remember and reflect on all that he has done so that we would be moved so that we would be compelled to worship with faith and obedience. Let me pray for us.